Welcome to the OKC First podcast. Together, we're learning to do three things. Friendship with God. Friendship with one another. And open friendship for the sake of the world. For more information about OKC First, please visit OKCFirst.com. Today's scripture reading comes from Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. And with that, we welcome Reverend Britt Bowlerjack back from sabbatical. And we are not finished welcoming her back from sabbatical, but we are finished today welcoming her back from sabbatical. So thank you, Britt. And I know what you're thinking, especially if you're new to this place. Um, why are we preaching from Revelation? <laughs> Uh, and to compound matters, then, I, I probably need to tell you, we will be in Revelation for several weeks until the day of Pentecost uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, first being, it is Easter season. And the way that we have talked about the Easter season, this concept of consolation, this concept of consolation that has a posture, it is the posture of open hands, but it also has with it sort of this, these marching orders, and that is that we would actually find where it is that the resurrected Spirit of Christ is active, and we would develop the skills to discern that place, and then also find ways to jump in and participate with that active Spirit of God. And I would submit to you no book does that better. No book prepares us for that kind of open-handed life. No book better than the book of Revelation. Now, I want to uh, relieve your mind a little bit. I, I don't think that I'm going to do strange things with it. I mean, I've got Dr. Tashin as my safety harness, right? Like, he's not going to let me do anything too, too strange with it. Um, are you familiar with Rotten Tomatoes? It is, a, it is a system whereby movies are assessed and judged. And it's not just the critics, it's also the, the, the public at large. And tied for, tied for the worst score ever. Some of you, now don't get ahead of me. Laura's already way ahead of me here. <laughs> tied for the worst score ever for any movie ever created is this beauty right here. Amen. <laughs> So, y'all, it got a zero percentage, (laughs) as in none, right? Zero. Now, um, okay, and this was the the caption for the Rotten Tomatoes uh, critics. They said, and I quote, (laughs) 
Yea, verily, like unto a plague of locusts, left behind hath begat a further scourge of devastation upon Nicolas Cage's once proud filmography. (laughs) (laughs) Now, uh, I believe he's done some good things since this time, but I would lend my voice uh, to their voices and say, this is not great. This is, and, and maybe this will put some of you at ease, this is exactly not what we're doing with the book of Revelation. I mean, I'm not saying it'll be entirely comfortable for you because maybe you have grown up believing that this is the right read of the book of Revelation, but that will not be the read that you get here. In fact, I would say here just off the top, while this won't be the same, I've actually worked through this with us a couple different times. Um, uh, and it's not going to be the same sermon series again because it's, it's, it's coming to us... Um, in the season of Easter, it, it seeks to do something a little bit different than what we've done before as we've just sort of surveyed the book. But we do have some things, some handholds that we need, that we need ahead of time so that we can kind of know how to read the book of Revelation. First of all, I, I would say this to us. We need to recognize that this is not just a book about what will happen someday, when, we, when you make it about what will happen someday, you push it so far out into the future that it might as well be two-dimensional, right? That's when it sort of takes up residence on a page or on a screen somewhere. If you believe that all that the book of Revelation is trying to do, the only use it is to us is that we can somehow figure out what's going to happen someday, then I think you actually miss the heartbeat of the book of Revelation. So when we first walked through this, all the way back in 2010, we handed out these sorts of 3D glasses to everybody, and many of the images, and I'm not doing this to you today, but many of the images on the screen that day were 3D images. And if you know anything about 3D glasses and 3D images, if you are, have you ever been in a movie, a 3D movie, and then you've taken your 3D glasses off, it, it, it nauseates me a little bit because it's different. You're supposed to have the glasses. It's the only way that you can really make sense of the imagery. Similarly, I would say to you, you probably ought to have something akin to 3D glasses. Because the book of Revelation is screaming, screaming, hey, this is not what about what will happen someday as much as it's about what happens all the time. You're in it. You are in these life circumstances and in the cultures that find themselves at war with the kingdom of the resurrected Christ. What does that look like then to be a faithful a faithful citizen of this new kind of kingdom. Your 3D lenses will help you to see that this is not about something someday. This is about today. This is about right here. And it's going to tell us how to be, how to stay postured. Second, here's something else that I will not do. I, I will not press this into some sort of scientific mold. I am not a, let's, I'm not a numerologist. I do not believe that there exists somewhere in the book of Revelation some code that finally tells us where to be and and when to sell all of our stuff for when God comes back to take all the good people away. A, I don't believe that's what the book of Revelation actually says. Did you know that the word rapture never appears in the book of Revelation? It's almost like it's been raptured. (laughs) I can't claim that one. I I borrowed that. Sorry. (laughs) Sorry. never appears. In fact, and we're going to spend three weeks on the last two chapters because that's what the lectionary asks us to do. What you'll see is a current that flows in the opposite direction. 
What you'll see, rather than some sort of narrative that says, no, God takes the good people away from here, what you'll see, if we read just the black and white of the book of Revelation, is that God would come here. That God would come here and finish what God started, would complete, would bring all things to completion. That said, you are best going to read the book of Revelation if you allow it to be art and not science. Please don't look for equations. Let it speak to you artistically. And finally, this is just last week, and by the way, uh, it's not an original lectionary church calendar term, but it has come to be a term in church circles. Uh, the Sunday after Easter is called Low Sunday. <laughs> Can you see why? <laughs> that said, that said, the book of Revelation is, now, hear me now, hear my heart here, is not so, much to, not so much meant to be read by you, the individual believer. It is a letter written to churches. We are supposed to read it with a collected eye, with a collected imagination. It is a letter written to believing people, specifically seven churches. Now, we also believe that it has something to say to us as well, but if you try to go into the book of Revelation and read it as an individual believer, separated from the body of Christ, separated from the movement of the kingdom, it will not make sense. And here's the reason why. It's not supposed to make sense to the individual believer. It's a word written to us as the people of God. I found this quote a long time ago, actually. But Elizabeth Schusler Fiorenzia says this, something very strange happens when this text is appropriated by readers in a comfortable, powerful, majority community. See if this sounds familiar. It becomes a gold mine for paranoid fantasies and for those who want to preach revenge and destruction. Sound right? Here, here is a metaphor for it. Revelation is actually kind of a, a prolonged political cartoon. Have you ever seen a political cartoon? There's something going on in the construction and then the communication of a political cartoon. But you need to be in on the joke. Similarly, I would say, the joke will be lost on us if we don't come with these kinds of lenses. In fact, in fact, I would say this. Read the book of Revelation, not just for its eschatology, which is the theology of how things end, but also, and maybe more so, for its ecclesiology, the study of how we are us, the people of God, how the church is supposed to function. Now, eschatology informs the ecclesiology. Knowing where we're headed tells us how to get there. Does that make some sense? So you have to have it, but please read it with an eye toward what it's trying to say to us, to us. The risen Christ, the King of Kings, is out there working. This is the testimony of the book of Revelation. Working by the Spirit, and as his body, we are meant, we are meant and sent then to find him and join him. And we have used this term, consolation. In fact, it's the, it's the, defi- it's the uh, title of the entire series, and I want to remind us of what we mean when we say consolation. A person dwells in a state of consolation 
characterized by open hands, when he or she is moving toward God's active presence in the world. We know we are moving in this way when we sense the growth of love or faith or mercy or hope. But I would remind us again, this does not mean that everything is good in the neighborhood. This does not mean that everything is happy in the world, in your world. This means that there is a particular posture with which we can live as resurrection people, even and perhaps especially in the midst of difficult, ugly, deathly circumstances. No book in all of Scripture has more to say about God's active presence in the world. What that presence looks like, what participation with that presence looks like. No book has more to say about this than the book of Revelation. And so we're going to backtrack a little bit. These are the verses that precede the verses you heard Britt read today. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all he saw. Do you recognize this scene? This is an apocalyptic moment. Now, here's, here's what I mean by that. Now, apocalyptic literature is a particular kind of literature. Apocalyptic literature, and that's what Revelation is, seeks to pull back the curtain, seeks to pull back the curtain to show you what's really going on. You remember this, right? In The Wizard of Oz, their eyes were captured by all that was going on, the smoke and the lights and the big voices and all of that. And then it was Toto the dog, I believe, that went over and did the apocalyptic thing, literally pulled back the curtain so you could really see, so that you could really see what's going on. The author of the book of the Revelation, I was going to say is Toto, but that would have communicated something other than what I meant to say, is a lot like Toto. The author of the book of Revelation recognizes that there is a lot of smoke out there, flashing lights, loud voices. But what's going on behind all of that? What is behind all of that? What, what can we see and discern that will then tell us what we need to know about God and what we need to know about chasing and following and emulating this God, especially where the people of God, the body of Christ is concerned? And so, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, who is to come, and from the seven spirits, all the spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, <laughs> without apology, without apology, the one who conquered death says, I think this puts me in charge. Without apology, Christians say, we think that there's something about the resurrection that demonstrates that there is a power beyond all power, and we should be listening to and following that one, the king of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be, made us, made us to be a kingdom, priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Now, I, I, I need to warn you a little bit. There may be times when you feel like as you read through the book of Revelation, and by the way, 
It's dangerous, but go ahead and read through the book of Revelation. Just, just, just kind of do it with open hands, right? Read through it. But I need to warn you, there will be times when you will feel like the voice of Jesus has an edge to it. I think you're probably right. Because I, I think what you will hear is this, that Jesus, the resurrected Messiah, the Son of God, the King of Kings, has been raised from the dead. But the people chosen, hand-picked to embody the victory of love over power, love over death, love over the fear of death, the church, and that is us, doesn't seem to be paying attention. And so Jesus arrives, arrives with the intent to get our attention, to drag our attention away from the whistles and the bells and the smoke and all of that. And so I want to kind of slowly work you through how it is that Jesus arrives on the scene. And as I do, I want you to notice the senses, like the physical, literal, human senses that John here, and by the way, we don't, we don't think this is John the disciple. This is a different John. But I want you to notice how it is that the arrival of Christ impacts, confronts the senses of this John person. Verse 9. I, John, your brother, who share with you in Jesus the persecution and the kingdom and the patient endurance. We believe that he was speaking out, saying crazy things like, Caesar is not the ultimate authority. That'll get you in some trouble way back when. We believe that he was a person of prominence who, because he was so prominent, was not, probably, probably was not going to be executed because that would have been sort of a black mark on the administration. And so rather than execute him publicly, they sort of banished him. They sidelined him because he kept saying things like, Jesus is Lord. They banished him to this giant rock known as the island of Patmos. It's, it's, it's kind of the Alcatraz of its day, right? And this is where he was when Jesus shows up. He was there on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to these seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So while we aren't the first audience and while each of these churches had specific issues and circumstances that are covered in each subsection of the letter, we here today are called to read and determine whether or not those same words might have been or should have been written to or for or about us. Verse 12, then John turned to see whose voice it was that spoke, and on turning he saw seven golden lampstands, so we already have hearing, and now I have sight. And in the midst of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with the golden sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white as wool, white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined as in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. It's art. It's art. I mean, how else would you try to capture with words that moment when you know that God was on the scene in your memory? In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining with full force. Verse 17, not surprisingly, when John saw him, he fell at his feet as though dead. 
But Jesus placed his right hand on me saying, it's okay. Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and see I'm alive forever and ever. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Now, John, write what you have seen, what is and what is to take place after this. So you see it, right? The senses. The resurrection confronts so many of John's senses. He sees Jesus, his clothes, his hair, his eyes. He hears his voice. And then he's so terrified that he falls at his feet. And that's when Jesus reaches out and then touches him on the shoulder and saying, it's okay, it's me. The other passage lectionary made available to me today is the story of Thomas. You know Thomas. Thomas almost in tradition now seems to be his last name. I think his first name is Doubting, right? Which I, which I think is a little bit unfair because who among us would not be similar at least? It's, it's the one who doubts until he can see Christ's face, until he can hear his voice, until he can touch the wounds, and only then would he believe. It's as if our scriptures and our traditions insist that you and I must understand the resurrection to be tangible, embodied, experienceable with our regular everyday senses. Please keep in mind that in the Apostles' Creed, and we probably don't say it often enough, but there is a line in the Does everybody know what the Apostles' Creed is? It is a listing of our core belief statements, our core values, let's say. And there is a line in there that goes something like this. Now, I remember doing this in, in my Sunday school class years and years ago, and we were reading it, and we read through this one line that says, I believe in the resurrection of the body, and somebody in the room says, we do? I go, yeah, it's pretty important. So important that we list it in our listing of core beliefs. This, Jesus wasn't a ghost. This wasn't some sort of illusion. This was nothing less than an ultimate victory over death. In fact, this was nothing less than the ultimate victory of love over death, now embodied. Can you see why now it's important that the victory of love over death and the fear of death would still be embodied? We, the church, should settle for nothing less than an embodied testimony, an embodied implementation, announcement of the same victory. But... This is where Dr. Tashton really helped me this week. But in order to do so, we might just need to cultivate another of our senses. As I met with him this week, Dr. Tashton, he helped me to understand how important it is that we cultivate what he called the Christian sixth sense. Christian sixth sense, not the movie. And I think he's right. I'm painfully aware that, that I can use my eyes... <laughs> see something or someone right in front of me and yet not really see what's going on. Anybody else in the room have that capacity? I can see something and then not get it. I need the help to see the active presence of God in the world. I need help with what, let's call this Christian sixth sense, but let's call it Christian imagination. Imagination. And again, the book of Revelation is perfect for that. I don't think any book tells us more about Christian imagination than this particular book. This book that's designed to shape not just our eyes, but also our seeing, and I hope you can see the difference. Not just our eyes, but also our seeing. 
With our eyes, we see the tragedies, the mess, the heartache. But with the resourced imagination, we find the capacity to see God at work in the midst of the mess and the tragedy. And hopefully we see it such that we can figure out how to get in. Just to underscore what's going on here, verse 20 in chapter 1. There's a lot of imagery that is hard to understand and is not explained in the book of Revelation. And then there are gifts like this that tell us exactly how we're supposed to read some of these symbols and images. Verse 20 is one of those. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw on my right hand, John, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars or the seven angels are gathered up spirits of each of these churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And as you work through these seven letters, you'll see that some of these churches are threatened with the removal of their lampstands. In other words, here's what God's saying. You, if you keep down this track and you are denying the resurrection day in and day out, decision in and decision out, priority list in and out, if you continue to deny the reality of the tangible resurrection of God and the victory of love over power and death, at some point you disqualify yourself and will no longer be understood by anyone, including Jesus, as a church. I said it last week. Let me say it again here. We're a resurrection community. In other words, the resurrection organizes us in a particular way, gives us a message, orders our steps, creates a priority schedule for us. We are a resurrection community, hopefully in our organization, that communicates that love still wins. Still wins. John, you apparently are not watching the news. Man, has there ever been a time in human history when we needed the church more than we need it right now? Probably yes, but man, we still need it right now. We still need it right now. Now, I have to keep in mind, again, we were not the first audience, but there are a lot of times in here... A lot of times, as you read through the rest of the book, in particular these letters to these seven churches, y'all, if the shoe fits, right? And I think there are lots of shoes that fit local churches through here. God help us. For example, the first letters to the church in Ephesus. A church that was very deeply committed to theological precision, precision, getting the theology just right, getting the articulation of the theology just right. And they were so committed to getting it just right and not being wrong that somehow, somewhere in that process of getting it right and not being wrong, they forgot to love people. And so here comes John speaking for Christ. And this letter says, hey, church in Ephesus, really love what you're doing out there. Here's the problem. You seem to have lost your first love, which, by the way, is love. And... You can get it just right and get it wrong. And this is what they are threatened with, y'all. And if you get the theology wording just right and don't love, I think I'm going to go ahead and take that lampstand away. Because at the end of the day, what we don't need is loveless resurrection communities because you aren't a resurrection community. And then there's the city of Laodicea, the last of the seven churches that are mentioned. The city of Laodicea was captivated, captured, intoxicated by wealth and the pursuit of wealth. Only 
Wear the shoes if they fit. Now, this is a very interesting city. They were famous region-wide because they had a medical school. They specialized in eye health. Famous region-wide for a salve that actually had significant benefit for seeing and for vision. If you had eye problems, they tried as best they could to get you to Laodicea, or at least they tried to Amazon some of that stuff to get to your house. Specialized in eye health. And for that, they got pretty wealthy, as you might expect. That wasn't it, though. They were famous for their production of black wool. Almost nobody else in the known world was doing the black wool thing. And so just imagine, just imagine how popular they were for those kinds of clothes that would be, that would be constructed out of this black wool exported around the known world. They were so wealthy and so self-sufficient that after a, an earthquake hit in about 60 CE and ransacked a whole bunch of towns, wrecked a bunch of towns, so many within the Holy uh, Roman Empire that Rome itself came with resources like, we can help you rebuild, Laodicea said, no thanks, we got it. It's all in our checking account. No thanks. They wore their self-sufficiency, self-sufficiency like a badge. Only wear the shoes if they fit. The city was self-sufficient, self-assured, self-directed. The problem was then that the church started to reflect the culture. And so the resurrected Christ, John is carrying these words, the resurrected Christ. The resurrected Christ had very harsh words for the church in Laodicea. You've heard some of these words before. I don't want to belabor this point, but you've heard me say this a lot. This is where you find that famous statement, you are neither hot nor cold, so I want to spit you out of my mouth. Now, just a quick reminder, Laodicea didn't have its own natural water source, but they had the money to build a pipeline, a system of channels and pipelines that piped in cold water from Colossae and hot water from the hot springs in Hierapolis. But it was a long way away. In fact, so far away that sadly, by the time the water got to Laodicea, the cold water was lukewarm and the hot water was, you guessed it, lukewarm. And it kind of made you want to gag a little bit. The water meant to be refreshing from Colossae. The water meant to be therapeutic from Hierapolis was not either one by the time it got to Laodicea. You see the metaphor, right? And so the resurrected Christ is saying to this church in Laodicea, like that, you are intended to be in your neighborhood, refreshing and therapeutic, at least one of the two. (laughs) And when you're not, says God, it makes me want to spit you out of my mouth like you want to spit that lukewarm water out of your mouth. Friends, The book of Revelation here is not advocating, right, that somehow a lukewarm faith is better than an ice-cold faith. The the book of Revelation here is not advocating, listen, God would rather you be a mass murderer than to be apathetic. That's dumb. (laughs) That is not what's being said here. God may not be a big fan of lukewarm faith, but that is not what's being said here. What's being said here to a church, a church is... You are meant to be refreshing and therapeutic. 
And when you're not, it's like you're not a church. The people in the pews, the people around the church are supposed to understand you as refreshing and or therapeutic. And if you're not, God says, what are you doing? Because at that point, you're not a resurrection community. And here's the thing, God says, I am disgusted like you are with lukewarm water. I am disgusted with churches that aren't therapeutic and or refreshing. Yeah, but we've got a lot of money. Jesus says, yeah, about that. You say, I'm rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Here's what you don't realize. You've got your eye salve, you've got your black wool, you've got all your money, but here's what you really are. When you pull back the curtain, when you pull back the curtain, here's what you are. You are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Yikes. Sweet Jesus, what are you doing? Well, a loving Christ is assessing. Another quote, this is the church in an affluent society. But spiritually, the same church is poor, blind, and naked. And not all the banks, pharmacies, and looms in Laodicea can provide for its need. For it has failed to find in Christ, watch this, the source of all true wealth, splendor, and vision. I would substitute imagination. There is an imagination in the resurrected Christ that is not found, y'all, anywhere else. Do you have that imagination? I asked you last week, do you believe? Many of us, I have been guilty of this as well, agree. Agree. Something happened. Agree. Great. But the season of Easter is meant to push us, push us, push us until we don't just agree that something happened, but, what, but that we would then believe with our bodies and jump in and go ever, wherever it is with God to do what God is doing with God's life. The resurrection for us is a peculiar way of being alive until it isn't. Is the resurrection for you, is the resurrection for us as the people of God, an odd way of being alive. The people in Laodicea, uh, this is a church who had long surrendered their imagination to the culture. The victory of love was no longer organizing their steps, and yes, this is harsh language because <laughs> the resurrected Christ shows up to say, I think you're wasting my resurrection. It's as if it hasn't happened before. But the gospel message is even here and there, but that's not the last word. There is still help if you have open hands. Because it's in this same letter that we have other familiar words. Have you, have you heard this? Listen. And that's the creepy picture that was at all of our, house, our childhood uh, churches, right? Amen? Yeah. I mean, it's a fine picture. I'm sorry. It's a, it's a great picture. There, there's, no, there's no doorknob on the outside. The only way Jesus gets in is if somebody with open hands opens it from the inside because Jesus isn't going to break down the door this time. But he's always knocking on a weekly basis. This Jesus comes to failing churches every week. 
Failing hearts within churches every week comes and knocks. Behold, I am standing at the door, and I am still knocking. That word choice, that translation is very intentional. It's not, hey, I came that one time and I knocked. It's, I'm always here knocking. You hear it? Knocking, knocking. And if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and eat with you. In some translations, it's dine. Another form of that same word would be dinner. That word was used often in reference to the table. I will come in and eat with you and you with me. A few words before we go to the table. This coming of Christ in this moment, this knocking on the door, this is not meant to represent for you the final coming of Christ at the end of time. This is Jesus who always, and I would say on a regular, if not a weekly, if not an hourly basis, shows up saying, I can help, I can help, I can help if you just kind of let me in. I, I can help you live with open hands. I, I can help you embody the truth of the resurrection in your own household and in your neighborhood full of households, but you've got to let me in. You've got to let me in. This coming of Christ also cannot be understood as just a casual dropping by, just seeing if you're in. No, this is a very intentional coming by to come in and eat with us. Not only is Christian imagination enlivened here at the table, but maybe like the people in Laodicea, maybe your imagination needs some healing. That too, the healing can be found at the table, if your life posture is still this, <laughs> if your life view is still something other than living life open-handed in consolation in the light of the resurrection, if you are so self-consumed that you are consumed by self, then there can be healing found at the same table as well. Because our ability to seek out and join with the active presence of God in the world may actually require that we first experience healing where the imagination is concerned. I have really good news. That healing is available here. Not just here, but certainly here. Here, at the table. Not because the bread is magic. Not because the cup itself is, is a potion of some kind. No, healing is available here because the healer keeps coming around, keeps telling the story, our origin story, keeps insisting that it's best understood when we sit down with Jesus and Jesus sits down with us. But I will tell you, it only works when you have open hands. It only works if you come to this table with open hands. If you were helping us, would you please come and help us set this table, very important moment each week in this table. I was telling my Sunday school class today, man, I enjoy that bunch of people, and, and we have gotten, we, each week, remind ourselves that faith is a team sport. And some people are, are getting so into that metaphor that they are actually telling us where they hurt. 
and how they hurt. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> but the resources to be open-handed with a group of people and vulnerable and transparent with a group of people, those resources are found here. Are found here. When we recognize, when we realize that the resurrected Christ is here to eat with us and us with him to remind us of these origin stories that, that demonstrate time and again each week, we demonstrate that love still wins. And like we said last week, it's our hope that as we partake in the bread and the cup, that somehow, somehow, like those two who are on the road to Emmaus with Jesus, our hope is that somehow in the breaking of the bread and the, the taking of the cup, we catch a glimpse, catch a glimpse of resurrection life. So Heavenly Father, bless these elements and do with them, God, what only you can do. Give us the capacity to see what we couldn't have seen before, the capacity to hear and sense and imagine what we couldn't have seen or heard sensed or imagined before. God, in the tangible reminders of this story of the victory of love over everything else, may we be shaped to be people who not only can see you and your active presence in the world, but may we be shaped as people with open hands who can then spend our lives aiding and abetting <laughs> what it is that you're doing in the world. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet, to exit your pews to the left and to come forward with open hands as you approach the person holding the bread, as you approach Emily right here. She's going to take a piece of that bread, press it into your open hands and say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. Don't eat it just yet. Take that piece of bread dip it into the cup right here it's miles next to her as you do he's going to say this is the blood of christ shed for you you do remember that miles that's right that's what you're supposed to say. Okay, good. he's going to say the blood of christ shed for you and then take and eat be tangibly reminded of the victory of love and hopefully hopefully over a period of time you can appreciate that you are being shaped to be a person who believes with his or her whole body that you believe in the victory of love. Now, after you've eaten, please find a place to pray. You may want to make a step by this bowl to dip your hands into this water, to be reminded of the moment of your inclusion, the moment of your baptism, your inclusion in this movement of God. If you come to one of these side padded altars, we will assume that you are there for a prayer for, he prayer for healing of any kind, and somebody will meet you there and pray. If you want to come to one of these kneeling altars, we won't assume anything, but somebody at some point will come and at least touch you on the shoulder to say, you are not alone. You can circle right back around and sit at your pew. God hears those prayers too, I promise. But please continue to pray. God, give me eyes to see. If you would like, there are these prepackaged elements. Some of you are not quite ready for the public uh, communal thing, and that's perfectly fine. 
As soon as you get these elements, they've already been blessed and we're about to do the liturgy. Just go ahead and eat and drink. But I hope you'll continue to pray too. And by the way, all are invited, but none are compelled. If you don't want to participate, God bless you. But you're all invited. All of us who understand our need for grace are invited. It was on the night he was betrayed that our Savior took bread, blessed it, and broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body broken for you. And every time you eat of it, remember me, says the one who knocks. Later on, he took the cup and held it up before them and said, and this is my blood, the blood of a new covenant, shed for you, poured out for you. And every time you drink of it, including today, remember me, says the one who knocks. Remember me. Now I'll cross the sanctuary, if you would, as you are dismissed by row. Please come forward with your hands cup to receive these gifts of God meant for the people of God. As per usual, I will start off with a prayer for confession before turning over to Jason, who will actually take us in a little bit of a different direction during the season of Easter. I think you'll appreciate that. Heavenly Father, hear us as now we confess. As we confess, Lord, that maybe, maybe there is something about us as individuals and as a church but it is a little bit like the Laodiceans. Help us to see, Lord, if somehow we as a church are merely reflections of the larger culture. Help us to see, God, if we are not yet reflections of you, the resurrected Christ. 
And as I get out of the way here, I want you to pray your own prayer of confession. Might the Spirit now draw your attention to how it is that you are not yet representing the victory of love in your own life. before I turn it over to Jason. May the Almighty God have mercy on all of us and forgive us all our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. Strengthen us in all goodness and by the power of the Spirit, keep us in eternal life. And as we continue in these moments of prayer, I just want to invite you during these moments between confession and intercession for prayer of consolation through the season of Easter. And so I want to invite you in your posture. I want to challenge you over this next minute to maybe put your phones down, whether you're watching at home online or here in the sanctuary, but to just take these next 60 seconds or so to kind of put your phone down next to you. So we talked about in Sunday school class today, how hard it is to maybe not be on our phones. And I want you to go ahead and put your feet flat on the ground. And just like we've been saying for the last few weeks to put out your hands as openness and these open moments of a prayer of consolation. And it's going to be our imagination this morning. The imagination that Jesus is knocking on the door of your heart right now. In about 15 seconds each, there's going to be a short mantra I want you to say to yourself in this imagination. And it's pretty simple. So with your feet flat on the ground and your hands, palms up, just hear these words and then say them aloud to yourself. God loves me. Let that truth sink in today. Three or four times, say it. God loves me. And now this saying for about the next 15 seconds. God loves us. Would you say that in your heart and recite it in your mind? That God loves us. And then finally, would you say in your heart, in your mind's eye, God loves all of us. God loves all of us. Would you say that in these moments of a prayer of consolation? Thank you for praying with me in those moments. And as we turn to moments of intercession, I want to let you know that we would like to make just a little kind of prayer announcement for one of our friends. Our good friend, Diane Dawkins. Diane sits right over here and has really forever. Diane Dawkins has been diagnosed with breast cancer. She's going to be having surgery on May 12th. And so got the okay from Brett and Diane this morning to share that with their church family. So I'm going to pray for Diane in just a moment, Brett, Carter, and Coleman. But would you do that along with me? Would you say and give yourself in prayer to someone else who's heard that word cancer in their life? 
And even as I pray for Diane, some of you may just want to center your eyes over, kind of at their seats, right over where I'm looking now. So would you pray with me? Jesus, we come to you in prayer of intercession that your healing love and power would come alongside, God, those who need it the most. And we, as a church family, give our prayers to you now for the healing of our friend Diane Dawkins, that, God, your loving presence would come alongside of her, that she would know you're near, and that you would be with all of the doctors and physicians and technicians and nurses to care her to full health. And, God, we ask for her complete and whole healing. And God, through this journey, would you be with Brett? Would you be with Coleman? Would you be with Carter? Would you be with Commodore? Would you be with all who love Brett and Diane? And would you be with them every step of this journey? God, we also ask for a few others. God, we ask for your complete healing of Scott Peterson. God, we ask that you be with a, a few who've been in the hospital. Tamara Fields, who's been able to return to church this morning. God, continue to be with her. God, we ask that you'd be with Lynn Lucas, who had a, quite a hospital stay this week, but's able to return home. God, would you surround her in love and closeness? And whoever in your life in these moments you know needs a specific healing touch from God, would you lift them in prayer now? Those who came to my mind in prayer is Karen Martin, who had yet another fall this week, is healing at home, but be with her and John. And my friend Matthew Larson, who sits right over here, God, would you take care of him? As we close in prayer before the Lord's Prayer, I just want to take a moment for all of us to pray for the Oklahoma City Memorial Marathon that was taking place this morning that is still ongoing. And God, we ask that you would care for all of the runners, all of the walkers, those who cheered, those who participated yesterday in the 5K and the fun run and the kids run. God, we thank you for this event. We thank you for our city. We thank you for the ways in which you love our city. And God, we ask in these moments, just as we remember those 168 lives that were lost on April 19th, 1995. And so God, thank you for this day. And God, thank you for the day you've given us here in this space. And God, we give our hearts and our lives to you that we would be people of your imagination living into this prayer, the prayer you taught your disciples to pray. Church, would you pray along with me? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.